We have two scriptures this morning. The first one is Matthew chapter 1 verses 25 to 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned. They revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son choose to reveal him. Our second scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are preaching, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For for since in the wisdom of God, the word through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, but Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Oh, hello, there you are. <laughs> I was reading this book and not paying attention to where I was going, and I got lost in the woods. <laughs> oh, what book is this, you ask? <laughs> okay, I'll stop uh, pretending that I can act now. I am obviously a terrible actor. The only thing I have in common with the Golden Globe nominee is the color of my skin. <laughs> oh, burn. I'm allowed to burn white people because I am. All joking aside, I just wanted to take a moment to actually celebrate uh, with one uh, member of our community, Ben Reynolds. Uh, he is a New Testament professor at Tyndale University, and he relatively recently published a book. I say relatively because it's copyrighted 2020, but I only just got my copy. I want to say congratulations uh, to Ben on this. It's pretty cool. I haven't actually gotten far in it yet, uh, as most of it is above my cognitive level. But I am genuinely enjoying it, and I'm actually super excited about this chapter on Byzantine iconographic tradition offers a possible exclamation for the apocalyptic mode of John's gospel. So what that is, is essentially how ancient Eastern religious art helps us understand the gospel of John. How cool is that? Anyway, now the book is an academic book. So it comes with academic book prices, but if you want to borrow mine, 
uh, after I'm done reading it. And as long as it takes me to finish, you're welcome to borrow it. When Mon and I told Ben that we had bought the book, his response was, thanks for the support and for purchasing an expensive, boring book. <laughs> now, Ben's not going to be impressed with me saying this, but even if you don't know him, and you could pick this up from the introduction to the book, he is a brilliant intellectual academic, thinker, but he is also gracious in humility and has a teachable heart which uh, is, I think, what all academics should be. It's just, anyway. So, we love you, Ben, and excited about the book. Now, our passage today, uh, like Ben's book, are about the revelation of God. Today, specifically, our focus is in how Jesus reveals God the Father to us, uh, but also how that revelation is centered on the cross And being centered on the cross, it is both foolish to the wise and an embarrassing stumbling block to the religious. Now, one reason that I thought it was appropriate timing to share Ben's book today is because I want to affirm and show I am a firm believer in followers of Jesus studying, continually learning, continually seeking to know God more through reading, through studying. I think Christian education and reflection has a very important place in the maturing of our faith. So I don't want anything that I say to be misconstrued as saying anything other than that. But at the same time, I think a humble, like as a humble intellectual, I think like Ben would probably agree, I probably should have asked him first if he would agree with this, is that there's also an important reality that the deep revealing of God can only fully come about relationally by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opening hearts and minds into faith. And on top of that, oftentimes God is revealed in ways that are surprising and are challenging. Ways that shake what we actually thought to be solid foundations of understanding. Even for those of us who have spent our whole lives studying God will always surprise us and find ways to shake the foundations of our understanding and knowledge. This, I believe, is the kind of revealing of God that Jesus is speaking about uh, when he says, as uh, Nagin said for us, I just want to find the right verse, of course. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus here is contrasting the wise and the learned with children. I think a part of this is because the wise and the learned have received their wisdom from traditions that have been handed down to them. And when you close-mindedly lean on traditions that have been handed to you, it can make it nearly impossible to receive new revelations and new ideas that don't line up with your preconceptions. Whereas a child, not hindered by rigid preconception, is not only more malleable, but is open to mystery. So in this case... The mystery that Jesus is, the mystery is that Jesus 
is the only one who can show us what God the Father is like. And that only those to whom God chooses to reveal himself through Jesus uh, can receive and understand. For many of us who have been followers of Jesus for some time, this idea of looking to Jesus to see the eternal God isn't a new thing for us. But for first century religious Jews and the wise sages, this was utter foolish. Think of it. The Jews were looking for a Messiah, a coming king to defeat the Romans and to return them as a nation back to a place of power. This is what their wise traditions told them. So to suggest that their hope would be put in this wimpy, nonviolent Messiah running around hanging out with losers and outcasts, people who were the bottom of the barrel of society, while partying it up and breaking the Sabbath laws, this is an embarrassing, embarrassing thought to the Jews. And even more, right before our passage, Jesus had denounced the Jewish towns that he had worked miracles in. Jesus essentially tells them, as God's people, you see yourselves as better off than anyone else, but because you rejected me, and therefore rejected your own heavenly father, you are worse off than the worst of the non-Jewish towns in history. So for a people with great national pride, this, is, this idea is extremely embarrassing. God cuts their national and their religious pride to, their, to the quick. He tells them their whole view of God is messed up, askew. The whole idea of what Jesus is saying is utter foolishness and hugely embarrassing stumbling block for the Jews. It would be like if QAnon, um, now if you don't know, QAnon is a conspiracy theory that says a secret elite of Satan-worshipping cannibals plotted against the supreme leader Donald Trump. It would be like if QAnon actually turned out to be right, <laughs> Right? How embarrassing would that be for the Americans? And, well, quite frankly, for anyone, really. Or perhaps a better example that actually has a basis in something real is what it would be like if, you tell, if, if someone were to tell a group of fundamentalist evangelicals that the Trinitarian God is more concerned with the flourishing of humanity than the regulation of conservative morality. All hell breaks loose. People on both sides start accusing each other of being led by Beelzebub rather than by the Holy Spirit. And how embarrassing it would be if for either side of this divide that they find out they were wrong. That for all of their passion and good intentions, they never really knew Jesus. Now, taking it one step closer, how would you respond if Jesus told you that you were wrong? His kingdom isn't what you thought it was. If Jesus said to you, you really missed a key point about who I am, what I'm doing, to the extent that those you think of as outsiders and people on the wrong side of history are actually better off than you. That's how far you've missed what I'm doing I know if Jesus said that to me, uh, my face would turn from pasty white to a nice bright rouge. 
At the same time, I feel like God has said that to me many times in my Christian faith. Now, this is what Jesus is saying to the Jews. These are his own people. And that is what the cross says to the Jews who look for a sign, and to the Gentiles, those are everyone who isn't Jewish, who look for sagely wisdom. Your signs and wisdom can't grasp the truth of, well, everything. Who God is, what God is doing, where true freedom and salvation lies. It doesn't lie in the accumulation of power. It doesn't lie in capitalistic ventures. It doesn't lie in the most brilliant apologetic or theological argument. What is truly real lies in the self-giving, self-sacrificing, humble, lowly, embarrassing, and ridicule-inducing way of the cross. And quite frankly, we are never going to fully understand it. The way of the cross will always remain a mystery. A doorway into the heart of God beyond all human understanding. And this is a doorway we can only pass through in faith, in humble faith. We can't pass through this doorway of the cross through uh, utter conviction, but with humble faith, a faith that seeks to know God more through God's self-revelation in Jesus Yet a faith that is humble and knows that it can never grasp her own truth as a possession. And so is constantly open to perhaps being wrong. Very much in line with Jesus' teaching, as well as what the Apostle Paul has to say, uh, as in the verses that uh, Nagin read for us about wisdom. The letter of James in our New Testament defines wisdom uh, in this way. He writes, uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Now that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus has said, as we read earlier in Matthew. When, we, when he says that wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus says that in Matthew 11, verse 19. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. And here James is saying the very same thing. James goes on in verse 17. The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Wisdom is lived out in humility. Wisdom is submissive, impartial, impartial. Does that sound anything like the ways that people engage in online conversations as submissive and impartial in politics, in churches, in theology, as impartial, as considerate, submissive? Yet this is the kind of wisdom that, well, is foolishness to the world and an embarrassment to the religious. Now, a couple examples came very quickly to me of how many of us as Christians sell out to this wisdom and power of the world rather than the wisdom of God and the foolishness of the way of the cross. 
One example is a famous apologist. Now, for those of you who don't know, a Christian apologist is a person who uses argument to defend God. The aim is to defend Christianity against objections. So people who have objections or an argument against what's wrong with Christianity, an apologist will argue against those. In essence, uh, it's the idea of arguing someone into the kingdom of God. Apologists are kind of like Christian sages. They're arguing with philosophers in the public square to prove that God is who he says he is, or sometimes to prove that God is who they say he is. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a great place for, apolo- for apologetics, apologetics. Um, but I want to talk about this as one example. Recently, the world's most famous apologist was discovered to have done horrendous and hor- hor- horrible, unspeakable things. Now, we do have kids with us. I'm not going to go into the details, uh, but adults, of course, you can Google it. This was a man whose life was centered around godly wisdom. Wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and so sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So here is a man whose fruit is impure instead of being peace-loving. He uses violence against women. Instead of being considerate, he was manipulating others. Instead of submissive, he was oppressive. Instead of merciful, he was merciless towards those under his power. Instead of impartial, he was partial towards his own pleasures and desires and insincere about who he is. So for all of his arguing with people about who God is, his worldly wisdom was exemplary. His books are exemplary. But his heavenly wisdom was not heavenly and indefensible. Indefensible. The way of the cross makes the wisdom of even our most brilliant Christian apologetics foolish and an embarrassment when they do not live out the way of the cross. And this kind of violence against people is unacceptable in any form. And anyone who defends this type of apologetic or behavior needs to seriously wonder where they are in the kingdom of God. Um, That's a bit harsh, but you can obviously tell this upsets me quite a bit. And I've also heard evangelicals trying to defend his legacy. Uh, Anyway. The other example that came to mind is, is less... You guys will be less excited, so hopefully I won't get go off the tangent there. But another example that comes to mind is one of the world's most famous evangelists. Now, an evangelist is a person who shares the good news of Jesus with the world. Yet just on Sunday, a famous evangelist used his influence over his followers to get them to align themselves with a particular political ideology to advocate for the amassing of power for white evangelicals in America while defending policies that oppress already marginalized groups in the states and doing it in the name of Jesus. The good news. This stance, again, opposite to James, is divisive, inconsiderate, oppressive, lacking mercy for those who are the other, not impartial, but rather is arrogantly partisan. 
So for all of his preaching, his worldly wisdom of amassing power for his own kind, that's exemplary, right? That's what the world says, you know, amass power for your own kind, protect your own people. But his heavenly wisdom is, well, you know, missing. Now, obviously, people are more complex and layered than this kind of reductionalist portrayal. And I'm not, and not to mention that we also need to caution ourselves against being in a place of judgment over others, lest we find ourselves in an equally dangerous pathway towards arrogance and worldly wisdom. And I don't want to pretend that these two people can be reduced to these two things, but yet, with this caution in mind, simply comparing and contrasting these isolated events, these two are examples of how worldly wisdom and worldly power have been welcomed into Western Christianity, and then subtly, and not so subtly, they subvert the message of the cross. And by subvert, I mean the message of these people corrupts, it cheapens, it degrades, it perverts, it flips the message of the cross on its head. God's response to human wisdom and power is Christ crucified. The witness of Scripture tells us that to see the Father, we must look to Jesus. And to see Jesus, we must look to the cross. Jesus reveals the Father and the cross reveals Jesus. If we want to understand Jesus' teachings, who he is as Messiah, the coming King, how he shows us the nature and character of the Father, we must look to the cross, which is submissive. The cross is the only place where Jesus' teachings make sense. The cross Foolish to the world and embarrassing for the religious flips all of our understanding of wisdom and power onto its head. And when we are arrogant in our wisdom, defensive in our desire to amass power for the church and society, we take the work that God has done to reveal himself through Jesus by his work on the cross, and we try to force it back to being the very thing that God has worked to subvert. Fortunately for us, we are not left on our own to fight against this temptation to return to the ways of the world, to return to this temptation to subvert the subversive work of the cross. In the chapter before Jesus talks about the wise and the learned, he tells his disciples that they will be brought before their own kind, governors and kings to be arrested and flogged. Now, as a side note, I think it's interesting to consider the contrast between our current climate of white evangelicals fighting for power over the courts and Jesus saying that his ways are that the, the, his people will find themselves under the power of the courts. Now, Jesus says that when this happens, uh, and he says it in 10, uh, Matthew 10, 19 to 20, He says, when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Again, there's an interesting conflict between our current view of apologetics, where we spend a lot of time and energy crafting what to say, how to say it, how to defend and argue for our faith. And Jesus here is telling us not to worry about the words, but to rely on the Holy Spirit 
to give us the words to say, to speak through us. Anyways, my main point, though, is that I think the cross reveals is that no matter what we go through as followers of Jesus, we are not alone. Our hope and our help is not from our acquired wisdom or our constitutional religious protections. For those may be gone one day. But our hope is through the presence of the Holy Spirit, guiding us, comforting us, leading us, giving us the words to say. Our hope and our help is also found through Jesus' own suffering on the cross. In the cross, Jesus, fully human and fully God, reveals the Father's heart by enduring the worst that humanity, brokenness, and the evil one has to offer. Through Jesus, God's very self, the fullness of divinity is actually present with us in the worst of our pain, in the worst of our suffering and our brokenness. And God is not only present with us in it, but he is enduring it with us. I mean, that's ridiculous and foolish. The divine God is enduring suffering with us. In the cross, this shameful, embarrassing, and brutally painful method of death, God confounds the wise and the strong. He makes himself weak and foolish so that he could be with us and for us. Not just for us, but for those who are on the bottom. Those who are lowly, marginalized, those who are looked down in our society. And this is where the creator God of the universe has placed himself for our holistic salvation and for his glory. Now, how ridiculous, yet mind-blowingly hopeful and uplifting is that? The way of the cross can feel like a winding path through darkening forests of shifting shadows, yet even there, the luminous nearness of the crucified Jesus is both our present guide and the hope on the horizon. No matter if we can wrap our minds around it, this cross is the power and wisdom of God the Father, revealed to us by Jesus through the presence of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we embrace the joy found in knowing you. As you are revealed to us through Jesus, our crucified Lord. And so God... We offer you our times of learning, of studying and reading, of engaging and challenging our assumptions to learn more of you as you continually reveal yourself to us. We also embrace the joy of mystery of the cross that confounds human wisdom and power. And so God, we offer you our faith that we not become arrogant in our learning, but remain humble and open with heavenly wisdom that is submissive, impartial, and that bears good fruit of the cross. Fruit that is centered in the cross with humility. And as we embrace the joy of your presence for us and with us, your presence with us no matter what darkness this world may throw at us. You're on the cross. You are not only present with us, but you've endured it with us and for us. And so we embrace this joy of your presence. We ask that you continually reveal yourself to us, 
as we know you are pleased to do. Give us the humility to learn, to love, and to hope in your cross. Amen.